0: Maria Kanakova is here. When Maria Konnikova is here, it usually means we play, is that bullshit? And maybe that'll come up. You know, she'll say something and I'll say that's bullshit. But what we're going to talk about now is the episode that we're going to play you. This is a very special Friday edition. And Maria has, uh, you know, her compensation for appearing on the show over the years is nil. So I thought that I could do her a solid and play a full episode of her new podcast called The Grift. Thanks for coming on, Maria. Though. In this one instance, it is motivated by self-interest. Thank you so much, Mike. (laughs) Tell me about the grift. Where did it start? So
1: when I was researching the confidence game for three years, I had so much more material than I could use. um, And I learned that some of these stories we're so just rich from an auditory standpoint because these guys are charismatic and they're fascinating. And it's hard to capture that on the page because sometimes charisma doesn't translate. You know, I can write the quote and it sounds kind of sleazy. But if the same person says it to you, you're like, oh my God, what a a wonderful person, how endearing. And one of the things I learned over the years is it's often bad to interview con artists because you become way too sympathetic to them um, and you start believing them too
0: much. When you go to the con men, um, don't they want to not be exposed or are they in some cases reformed or saying they're reformed con men?
1: Oh, they love talking to you. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, they are so narcissistic, yeah. honestly. they They love that someone's interested in their stories. And most of them don't think of themselves as con artists. Um, Well, the
0: artist part, they'll cop to. They they
1: absolutely (laughs) will. They absolutely will. And so they'll say, no, no, you know, I didn't really do anything that wrong. And you'll find yourself after a while being like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're really a good person. You didn't do anything that wrong.
0: But are these people still work in the con for the most part? Some of them are. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, And some of them say they are not, but we're pretty sure they are.
0: When uh, a con man w- falls in with law enforcement, like uh, what's his name? Catch me if you can guy.
1: Frank Abagnale. Yeah.
0: Is he still working a con with them?
1: No, I don't think so. But Abagnale is a fascinating case because he's very famous yeah. because of Catch Me If You Can. But he only conned for a few years and he was a teenager. Yeah. So this is someone who's actually not that accomplished in the sense that he got caught really quickly. And a lot of teens perform antics like this. Mm-hmm. Um Not all of them pretend to be a pilot, but a lot of them kind of try out risky stuff, kind of skydiving. This was his skydiving, I think.
0: So tell me about the episode we're going to hear.
1: So the episode you're going to hear is about an art forger who for many, many decades um, perpetrated one of the biggest art frauds um, of the 20th century and did it in a very kind of brilliant way because he wasn't forging the big names. Yeah. So this isn't someone who discovered Picasso, for instance, or De Kooning or anyone you would have heard of. He came up with this brilliant plan that he was going to forge basically second tier painters um, who would still fetch good sure. prices at right. auctions. And so he did that and he was never he wasn't caught for many, many years. He still by the way has never been indicted or served any jail time because I think of two reasons One is that no one thinks that someone is going to forge someone like Buttersworth. Do you know Buttersworth?
0: Uh, I'm familiar with The Syrup. Ah, excellent,
1: excellent. Um, Yeah, it's right next to Aunt Jemima. Yeah, 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 she was, yeah. He, He forged artists that most people have never heard of, and... People say, you know, who's going to do that? Yeah. Um, And so they don't even look twice. So you don't even have to
0: counterfeiting a nickel. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Who would counterfeit a nickel? And yet, if you counterfeit millions of nickels, all of a sudden you're you're in business. Yeah. And then the second thing is, if you're going to do even if you have some suspicions that this might not be legit, what are you going to spend your resources investigating someone who forged, you know, a 10,000 even a fifty dollars or $100,000 painting, or someone who's forged a $10,000,000 right. painting. So resource-wise, you're not going to devote that much to people like him.
0: Maria Kanakova, the new show is The Grift. Thank you for doing this show and doing this show. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Mike.
0: Okay, and let me just explain what's going to happen right now. We will play most of, part of, but not all of an episode of The Grift. And the reason is twofold. One, I do think that if you uh, see like a 35-minute episode in this, your gist feed, you might be put off. So we wanted to suck you in. And the second reason that we're doing it is so that if you like it, we are encouraging you to go to the Grift's own feed. But I didn't want to play bait and switch with you here. I didn't want to have you say, wait a minute, you're not giving me the whole episode. So we'll tell you this up front. It's going to end on a cliffhanger. But I had to be honest because they're the Grift. We're the gist. Enjoy. Picture New York in the
1: early 70s. It's the worst decade the city has experienced in a long time. Crime is at a new high. Murder and rape are off the charts. Empty, gutted buildings and warehouses that should rightly be torn down are home to squatters. The walls and subways are covered with graffiti. The streets are littered with needles and discarded who knows what. And the culture scene is absolutely thriving. Amidst all the wreckage, communities of artists are finding each other and creating some of the most innovative stuff that has ever come out of the city. Performance art, pop art, postmodernism, minimalism, you name it, it's happening. At Max's Kansas City, a nightclub, you can walk in and bump elbows with Jasper Johns or the Ramones. There's a gritty scene at CBGB. Patti Smith, Andy Warhol and his factory, John Cage. The quality of life may feel sketchy, but artistically, anything seems possible. Anyone could be an artist.
2: It was an intoxicating thrill to create works and be able to sell them. And the only regrets I have is that I didn't make and sell 10 times more than what I what I did.
1: <laughs> I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift. Stories about con artists and the lives they ruin. Today, one of the greatest art frauds of the 20th century, and one whose aftermath is still being felt. wild art scene of 1970s New York. That's where the story you're about to hear unfolds. But it begins in an art world of a different kind. The uptown scene. The grand foyers and vaulted ceilings of Sotheby's auction house. Our protagonist, Ken Perenni, comes in. He introduces himself as an art dealer, and he's trying to sell an oil painting of a grand sailing ship on a stormy sea. The detail is exquisite. It looks like the sort of painting you chance upon in a quaint New England town and snatch up because of a certain je ne sais quoi that sets it apart from the other canvases. Ken says he found it at an antique shop. He doesn't know its value, or if it has any value at all, really. But he thought he would bring it by all the same, on the off chance it was worth something. Sotheby's is intrigued. They take the painting in for further inspection, and they authenticate it as a 19th-century work by James Buttersworth, a prolific artist known for his maritime paintings. Ken makes $20,000 on the sale. He's ecstatic. That's a lot of money for a young man who's never even been to college. And he's excited to put it to good use. He uses a chunk to buy quality canvases and oil paints for himself. You see, Ken is not just an art dealer. He's a skilled painter in his own right. He may not have had his own gallery show yet, but he's immersed in the burgeoning art scene and often invites friends to see his work in his studio. Sometimes he even gives away paintings to his closest friends. He's trying to build up his name, and in the 1970s climate of possibility, it's not so crazy to think that his might be the next star to rise. And it's not so crazy that an aspiring painter would work part-time as a dealer. Art dealing, after all, has long been a time-respected way to make a living while honing your own art. But what is crazy is that in Ken's case, the two things aren't as far apart as they might seem. In fact, they are one and the same. You see... The paintings Ken Perenni is selling are the same paintings he is making. Ken Perenni is an artist of a different ilk. He is a master forger.
2: I'm a great lover of art and fine paintings, first and foremost. And I spent my entire life, from the time I was basically 18 years old, painting pictures and figuring out how to turn them into money. (laughs)
1: The only thing Ken Perini loved as much as art was swindling the art world. He relished the contest of wits, the risk of getting caught, the thrill of deception, the sense of power that comes with a successful con. But more than anything else, he loved to see his work get the recognition he always felt it deserved. Ken's original work never got much attention. Everything seemed possible downtown. But somehow he failed to make the grade. But his fakes? His fakes were something else. Those were brilliant. He successfully forged and sold art to the great galleries and auction houses around the world for over 30 years. Ken Perenni might be a mediocre artist, but he is a great artist. Con artist. His story begins in New Jersey in 1967. Ken is your typical disengaged teenager without much interest in anything. Until one day, when he meets a group of artists living nearby in a decrepit mansion.
2: Which was known locally in Fort Lee as the castle. It was sort of a local curiosity, this house. And it was very dramatically situated on the cliffs with a beautiful view of the Hudson River and Manhattan.
1: The artists were bohemian types who'd moved in to get away from the city. And Ken instantly became enamored with their
2: world. I was more or less just a a groupie, a hanger-on there. But I wanted to be like one of them. And I started going to galleries, art shows, museums with them, tagging along. And I was exposed for the first time to art.
1: It was a revelation. Ken was just a working-class kid from New Jersey. He went to a vocational high school. He fixed cars. But wandering around the Met, he fell in love with the European masters. The lush floral bouquets of Jan Bruegel, Hubert Robert's Roman ruins, dreary canal scenes by Francesco Guardi. And before long, Ken decided he wanted to make art.
2: So, I guess in the brashness of youth, I got some brushes and some canvas.
1: Courtesy of his friends at the castle. And he began teaching himself to paint in oils. As an exercise, he tried copying old masters.
2: I remember the first picture I painted was a small copy of a Rembrandt, a small portrait of Christ that he did. And I surprised myself, and I tried another, and another after that, I tried Dutch paintings and Flemish paintings, and I started developing a real talent.
1: Ken had an eye for detail, a steady hand. He was a natural, and one of the artists at the castle took notice.
2: He was so impressed with my ability to paint in the style of the old masters, which he suggested as a lark. Well, look, I just read this book on Hans van Meegren,
1: Van Meegren was a famous forger, active from the 1920s through the start of World War II. He specialized in faking Vermeers.
2: Why don't you read it, and why don't you try and make a fake, and you could sell some paintings and (laughs) keep going. And um, so I took him up on it.
1: By now, Ken was 18 and had finished high school. He wanted to move into the city and become an artist. But he needed cash to do it. So the idea of selling a fake painting he might as well try. It turns out the Van Meegeren book wasn't just the biography of a forger. It was a how-to guide. Step one, find a genuine antique painting, but a cheap one. This would be the base, what people in the forgery business call the support. It can be an actual painting or a piece of wood from the appropriate time period. Ken noticed that a lot of the Flemish paintings he loved were painted on wood panels. So he went looking for antique furniture and found that the inside of a drawer in an 18th century desk would work perfectly. Luckily, antique drawers were plentiful. Step two, the painting. Van Megren was successful because he produced paintings in the style of Vermeer, but didn't make exact copies. If he had, he would have been caught right away, or at least far sooner than he was. But when authenticators saw his work, they saw a painting done in Vermeer's style on a canvas that was dated to the right period. Logically, it seemed like it was a previously undiscovered Vermeer. And that made it even more valuable. It was a lost period of Vermeer's art that shed an entirely new light on his career. It was a brilliant move. And had it not been for World War II, you might be admiring some of the forgeries as real Vermeers today. The only reason Van Meegeren was ever caught was for selling art to the Nazis. After the war, he had to prove that he had sold forgeries to escape a far harsher sentence of collaboration with the enemy. Inspired by Van Meegren's success and undaunted by his downfall, Ken Pereni went to the Met in 1967 and chose six Flemish portraits to draw inspiration from. He made a composite sketch, taking the nose from one, the hairstyle and tunic from another, the positioning of the hands from a third, and so on. Like Van Meegeren, he would create Flemish portraits that almost but not quite match the existing works. The third step was aging and cracking the painting. Normally, an oil painting takes at least a few months to dry. To speed up the process, Ken baked his paintings in the sun for a few weeks. But he wasn't finished yet. You've seen the fine hairline cracks in old paintings. But how to replicate that? This is where the real work began. Ken first studied the cracking patterns in old paintings. Then, he used an engraver's needle and a magnifying glass to painstakingly etch the fine lines into the painting he was working on. It was the most labor-intensive part of the whole process and took days to complete. But you couldn't rush it. Accurate cracks were the ticket to authenticity.
2: I'm still perfecting and developing and refining new ways of creating crack patterns, patinas?
1: He next applied a powdered pigment wash to darken the cracks and make them look bolder and more authentic. And finally, he applied a brown varnish over the top to imitate an antique patina. But would his painstaking work fool experienced art dealers? For Kent's first experiment, he chose one of his creations, what he thought was a remarkably authentic-looking painting of a middle-aged man with a long nose thin lips, and a monk's cropped haircut, wearing an austere black tunic. Ken popped his composite forgery into a used manila envelope and brought it to the now-defunct Ephron Gallery on 57th Street in New York.
2: I walked in with a painting under my arm, and just, it was very simple. Found this at an antique show, looked familiar, something I may have seen in a magazine or something.
1: Then, Ken let the gallerist tell him where the painting came from and when it was done. And the gallery authenticated it as an 18th century Flemish work.
2: And I managed to sell it. I have to confess, I became fascinated with the act of creating a modern painting, making it look old. And can I sell this as a period work? It's an intellectual... And Artistic Challenge
1: Soon, he was developing his own methods of aging paintings, and his own personal touches for making a work seem even more authentic. Here's one thing he'd do. He noticed that old paintings that had been previously sold at auction had stickers on the backs. And the stickers, of course, had age too. So he bought some new stickers and dyed them with tea to make them look old, then stuck them to the backs of his paintings. He also noticed that auction houses used chalk to write serial numbers on the backs of the paintings they sold. So Ken wrote some numbers in chalk on the backs of his paintings. Then he'd partially rub it off to make it look like the painting had been handled. All of these little tricks not only gave his paintings the illusion of age, They suggested that these pieces had been authenticated and sold before, and that made the auction houses more likely to buy them. Anyway, moving uptown was a game-changer for Ken's forgery career, because instead of living among the avant-garde artists, he was among wealthy collectors. And it wasn't long before he befriended some of them.
2: Jimmy Rico was an eccentric. He lived as a semi-recluse, and he lived in a magnificent old mansion just 20 minutes north of New York City. He was very well-known in the art world, and he was sitting on one of the greatest collections of American paintings and sculpture in the country.
1: Jimmy sensed that the market for 19th century American landscapes was about to blow up. He also knew that Ken was in the business of art forging.
2: And Jimmy had a plan for me. He felt that I could apply my abilities to faking 19th century American paintings, which was his passion, his love.
1: Sotheby's had just established their American painting department in their New York auction house.
2: Jimmy Rico wanted to get me in on the ground floor. He was set on the idea of seeing if I could create paintings where his beloved artists left off and continue their work. He didn't care about what anybody thought about him. He didn't care for art dealers much. And he just wanted to do this. It was, I think, irresistible for him to be part of this uh, creative process. I started producing my first 19th century American fakes. And two of my Buttersworths, uh, James E. Buttersworth, uh, an important marine painter that I learned to uh, emulate early on under Jimmy's direction, two of those were in one of the first or second sales that Sotheby's had of American paintings.
1: Buttersworth was known for painting grand ships in very fine detail. Ships on calm seas ships on stormy seas. Sometimes he'd branch out a bit and even paint a steamboat. A Buttersworth is essentially fancy wallpaper. And yet the choice to paint fake Buttersworths was ingenious because Buttersworth is a second or third tier painter. He's known, but he's not Rembrandt or Vermeer. That means that a Buttersworth has a lower value. Which means that the auction house will not devote as much energy into authenticating it, so it comes under less scrutiny. What's more, as Jimmy Rico explained to Ken, no one thinks something like a Buttersworth is worth forging. Why would anyone waste time on something like that? There's one more reason why Ken's chosen route was so brilliant. Unlike a painting by a more famous artist, something like a Buttersworth doesn't need a solid provenance, or a record of ownership of a painting that traces all the way back to the painter himself. If you're forging a major work of art, you better have good provenance as proof of authenticity. A major painter leaves tracks, so you'd need to forge that as well. And a convincing backstory with accurate documentation can be much more difficult to come by. But by painting Buttersworth's, Ken could skip that part. He could say that he bought the painting at an antique sale or a garage sale. And that was perfectly believable, because people would sell these things without knowing what they had. And art dealers often took advantage of that, buying the painting for cheap and then selling it at a much higher price at auction. So Ken and Jimmy's scheme worked really well.
2: And this was the great turning point. In my life, because then it went from something I did just to keep me alive to a real career, because now I was making serious money for the first time.
1: But for Ken, it wasn't just about the money anymore. He became addicted to the thrill of the con.
2: I found it as a contest of wits. An intoxicant and an addiction to the risk-taking and the thrill of the payoff and seeing a painting that I knew I painted myself go up on the stage at Sotheby's and be handled with porters that had white gloves on to handle it very carefully and sit in the audience and know that I painted it a few months ago.
1: Ken abandoned his career as an original artist in favor of his forgery career. But he wouldn't put it that way himself.
2: I actually became an original artist in an unusual way because the challenge for me was to create new and original paintings, but within the creative perimeters of the artist that I was emulating.
1: Somebody else's creative parameters. But no matter. As long as Ken painted under someone else's name, he didn't have to be vulnerable as an artist. He didn't run the risk of having his own original work rejected by the art world. The only people he had to impress, or rather fool, were the authenticators at the auction houses. So Ken's real art became the process of making a modern fake look like a real antique.
2: I pride myself on being able to equal and, if I may say so, by many estimates, even surpass the quality of many of the masters that I emulate.
0: And that's it for today's show. That's also it for the show you were just listening to, The Grift. Hear are other episodes and the end of that episode in The Grift's own feed. That show was produced by Odelia Rubin, Jacob Smith, Julia Barton, and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Our show was, as always, produced by Chris Berube, Mary Wilson, executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Liktai, and chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers. The Gist. That's how we say it. That's how we spell it. Oomperu, depuru, duperu, and thanks for listening.